0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, musician A.J. Croce, the son of the legendary Jim Croce, talks about finding his father's soul in the music that he wrote and the music that they shared. Author Michelle Ross speaks on creating literary worlds in miniature for her short story collection, Shapeshifting. And meet actor, writer, and producer, Heather Massey, who's sharing the amazing true story of Hetty, the life and inventions of Hetty Lamar in a new solo stage show. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Folk rock superstar Jim Croce died at age 30 in a plane accident that happened in 1973. He left behind a stellar list of memorable hits and a family, including his only child, Adrian James Croce, who goes by A.J. He was only two years old when it happened. A.J. grew up to be a musician in his own right, choosing a path more directly influenced by rhythm and blues and the vibrant sound of New Orleans. But these were influences that he shared with his father, and his new concert tour finds AJ exploring this complex and joyous musical legacy. Croce Plays Croce, happens at the Fox Tucson Theater on Saturday, January 29th.
1: This is a chance for me to pay tribute to my father and to play his music, to play my music, and it's really about the connection between the two. Uh, because I discovered that we had a lot of similar influences. In fact, I would say I really came to embrace my father's music uh, as much through his record collection as through his songs.
0: That's a really interesting take. When you delved into Jim Croce's record collection, what did you find, A.J.?
1: Well, you know, I was a kid, and it was a collection I grew up listening to, so there was all kinds of stuff, certainly old rock and roll like Little Richard and uh, early R&B stuff, um, tons of folk music, soul music of all varieties, <laughs> from Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett to uh, James Brown and Aretha Ray Charles, There was stuff like Louis Prima in there. There was tons of great old blues and country stuff.
0: (laughs) So basically the greatest music of the 20th century is what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So Mississippi, John Hurt, you know, that stuff, you know, it encouraged me much later on in my career to pick up guitar. and, And, you know, I really fell in love with the instrument after playing piano my whole life.
0: Right. When we talked last time, I asked you about why the, the six strings called to you beyond the 88 keys. And <laughs> you, you told me, you know, how that how that kind of evolved. But a couple of things yeah. that I really want to let our listeners know about if they don't know these stories that are associated with your family. And the first one is your mother, Ingrid, played an, an integral part in Jim Croce's musical career. So can you speak a little bit to your mother's influence in the music?
1: Absolutely. My folks met when my father's uh, folk group was judging this uh, Hootenanny folk music competition in Philadelphia, in Plymouth Township to be exact. And um, my father was one of the judges and my mother's group was called the Rum Runners and they won um, this Battle of the Folk Band competition. And shortly after that, they started writing together. And uh, they fell in love. And my folks signed to Capitol Records around 1967. Uh, they recorded an album called Jim and Ingrid Croce. Unfortunately, it didn't do that well. So they, you know, they tried to uh, move to New York and see if they could make something happen there. And and then um, my mother, you know, was pregnant with me and... Um, my dad wanted to try one more time, and he felt like it was his last chance. And that was really um, when he started writing his best work, without a doubt.
0: There's kind of an urban legend that's attached to the story of a deal that your grandparents made with Jim about recording his album. Can you uh, Can you tell us the truth about that?
1: <laughs> I don't know about any urban legend or any deal that was made. You know, my grandfather was a huge music fan, loved jazz, turned my father and um, consequently me onto people like Bessie Smith and Fats Waller. And so he loved music and he, you know, encouraged my dad to play music, but really thought of it as a hobby. So as a wedding gift, um, my grandfather paid for my dad to record an album. It was just an independent, small studio. It was called Facet. There were 500 copies that were printed. That was around 1965 or so. I think my grandfather felt like he would get this music thing out of his system and find a good nine-to-five job and use his, his, uh, his degree from Villanova, you
0: know, for some sort of a, a career. AJ, a really memorable part of our first conversation that came out around the time that your album, Just Like Medicine, was released and, and you were visiting Tucson, was when I asked you about how you came to know your father, you said, I came to know him the same way as you did. At what stage in your life do you think you really began to listen to your dad's music, and when did it become your music?
1: I don't know if it ever became my music. I think I always listened to it. It was in my house. It was on the radio. It was my legacy. It's part of my life. I was in my early 30s when I was doing some digital transfers of old reel-to-reel demos of my father's and came across this one tape. And on that tape, there were all of these songs that I had played since some of them since I was 12 years old. Bessie Smith, Pink Anderson, Mississippi John Hurt, Sonny Terry Brownie McGee and Fats Waller, you know, so I got chills hearing these these performances of just you know him playing by himself at home. And, you know, he's rehearsing for a show. It was just that um, moment when I realized we had something in common that was real unique. And it was when I found a connection to him, not just his music, but to him. In doing this Croce Place Croce concert, I'm not trying to mimic or uh, copy my father's inflections or voice or anything, uh, you know, I'm faithful to some arrangements and, and I have fun with others. I play guitar on many of them, but some, like Car Wash Blues, I get to play piano on and really have fun with, with the roots of where that, where that music came from.
0: A.J. Croce and Concert on Saturday, January 29th. There's a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The Unexpected plays a big role in many of the 14 short stories contained in Shapeshifting, a new collection by Tucson-based author Michelle Ross. It's an eclectic mix, and it asks readers to consider the inner lives of mothers and daughters, some of whom don't really even know themselves. Michelle Ross uses an economy of words, leaving nothing to waste. I began our interview by asking how she honed her writing skills, which reminded me of focusing a microscope.
2: Kind of in a roundabout way. I mean, when I went to graduate school for creative writing, I thought I wanted to write novels. But of course, you know, for a workshop, type situation. It just made more sense to write short stories. I mean, we were reading short stories. You, you want to submit something that people can discuss within a class. And then over the course of that, I just ended up falling in love with short stories. And now I have a hard time imagining writing a novel. I think the second part to that answer, too, is that really ever since I had my son about, he's almost 12 now, I really got drawn to flash fiction after he was born because it fit my lifestyle. You know, I I was busy all the time, so like being able to find these little pockets of time to write made more sense with really short stories than it did with, you know, a very long story or a novel where you I think you really kind of need long periods of time to get the momentum of the piece going.
0: Something I felt from reading your book, Shapeshifting, which is a collection of stories, was that you have a real momentum yourself as a writer. There's an architectural structure to your writing that is comforting. I don't read a whole lot of fiction anymore. For me to feel like I was in the hands of someone who had very carefully constructed the story uh, was reassuring. Michelle, can you reflect a little bit on what you think your writing style is like and how much planning and pre-construction do you do before you start writing a story?
2: I really do very little to zero planning in most cases. That's interesting. Mostly I sit down and I just start writing something. You know, there might be a character or dialogue or image or setting or some little thing that that I start with, and then I just kind of follow it to see where it goes. Even in the few cases where I do have more of a sense of the story before I start, like the last story in this book, A Mouse is a House for Teeth, that was probably one of the fastest stories I've written in the whole collection. I'd kind of had this feeling of the kind of story I wanted to write before I started. You know, I, I wanted this certain feeling about early motherhood, this exaggerated feeling of being trapped in a house and and not being able to go anywhere and and just not really knowing what quite is real anymore. Um.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's where we've all been living for like two years now.
2: Yeah, and that's the funny thing. I wrote this before that whole thing started. I mean, Mm. it's a pre-pandemic story, although I didn't write it very long before the pandemic started. But yeah, it does feel very familiar now to what everybody's experienced
0: You just mentioned motherhood as being one of the themes, and that is a strong theme in shape-shifting. And for someone who is not a parent, and moreover, someone who is male, I felt like I was being let in on some secrets. Uh, And your publisher talks about the cult of motherhood (laughs) being a concept that's in your book. And uh, that's what it felt like. It felt like I was reading secret notes from the meetings of the cult of motherhood. Um, What would you say to that?
2: Mainly, when I think of men reading this book, I just hope they find something that they're drawn to in these stories. I mean, that that to me was probably my biggest concern, publishing a book about motherhood and mothering, is that, you know, am I alienating a huge potential audience by the topic? I think my number one goal in pretty much every story I write is to tell the truth about something. I don't mean autobiographically, but you know, this larger truth. I want to feel like I'm being honest and getting down to the core of what I'm actually writing about instead of, you know, skating the surface or telling stories the way I've heard them before. I want to I want to do something new that feels really raw and honest.
0: According to your bio in addition to your fiction work, you work as a science writer, and I wonder How do you feel about the current anti-science trend that is permeating our culture? It's not exactly new, but somehow, ironically, Mm -hmm. through the means of technology and social media, it seems like anti-science sentiments are flourishing.
2: Just hearing you state that right now, it's I, <laughs> I hear the irony of it, right? That, you know, it's through technology that people <laughs> are, are
0: turning people their back to. on technology.
2: <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I find it really scary. Um, I, I also think a lot of it comes from just lack of understanding about what science is and how it works, Um I think of science as being very similar to fiction writing. I think they're both the same kind of thing. You're you're exploring the world, trying to understand people and the world we live in better by asking questions, not assuming that you know the answers, but asking those questions and see what thing what happens following those questions.
0: Can you tell me a story about a book that you encountered at some point in your life that you would now consider a lifelong friend?
2: Well, one book I just started thinking again about recently is Amy Hempel's short story collection, Reasons to Live. I encountered that collection when I was in college taking creative writing workshops. And up to that point, I had been reading, I don't know, more I would say more traditional-looking short stories. And her book, I mean, I didn't even know the term flash fiction at the time. Reasons to Live contains some flash fiction stories, but also even the longer stories, they're much more modular, these like very concise, dense little pieces that she weaves together to make a story. And it was kind of world-changing for me. I mean, I had really struggled with plot, and this story just opened up all these new possibilities that had never occurred to me. It's, to me, one of my dearest short story collections for that reason. I mean, I love her writing in general, but but because it made such a difference in how I saw the short story as a form and its possibilities...
0: And now Michelle Ross reads an example of flash fiction in this short story called Palette Cleanser.
2: See this postcard of a hotel, this window circled in blue ink? That's the room in which I realized I would leave your father. You were there with me, in fact, though I'm sure you don't remember. You couldn't have been more than three. Your father was in Chicago for business and on a whim. I drove us out of town for the weekend. I'd never done a thing like that in my life. Once we were settled into the hotel, I walked you down the street, a sidewalk shaded by enormous elms, ginkgos, and maples, to this French restaurant where they served a fixed menu every evening. Three courses, three choices per course. And in between the salad and the dessert, a palate cleanser. In this case, a lemon sorbet served in a little blue goblet. The grin on your face when the waiter set that blue goblet before you, your own little goblet. For the courses, I had given you bites from my plate. You had eaten that food dutifully, but only the sorbet made you smile before you even tasted it. Because it was beautiful. Because it was all yours. That's how I felt at that hotel. It was the first time in my life that I'd stayed at a hotel all by myself. Well, not by myself, really. You were there. What I mean is I was the only adult. I was in charge. I could do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. I could, for instance, take my toddler to a fancy restaurant that her father wouldn't even take me to. It was a feeling I hadn't known I was missing. And once I felt it, I wasn't willing to give it up. Like how after that palate cleanser, when the waiter brought out that one chocolate souffle for us to share, your grin vanished, your face reddened. The waiter had barely even taken his hand from the plate. I saw the look of panic on his face. You were the only child in the place, much less the only toddler. It was not the kind of restaurant where one took children. I quickly pushed that souffle toward you before you wailed.
0: Michelle Ross's recent collection of stories is called Shapeshifting, published by Stillhouse Press. The amazing true story of Hetty Lamar, who was once called the most beautiful woman in the world, revolved around her scientific genius as much as it did her legendary Hollywood career. The new stage show Hetty: the life and inventions of Hetty Lamar, tells both stories at once, and it requires the show's writer, producer, and star, Heather Massey, to bring dozens of characters to life. I will talk with Heather Massey about how she's able to do it next as she prepares to visit Arizona for three performances.
3: We owe Hetty Lamar a great deal in terms of the technology that we use every day. So Hetty Lamar during World War II wanted to improve torpedo guidance. So that it could be foolproof, and to do that, she invented frequency hopping, which was changing radio frequencies very quickly so that a radio signal could not be intercepted, so it could be secret. It was called the secret communication system, and we now use her technology as frequency hopping spread spectrum technology in our cell phones, Wi-Fi, GPS, Bluetooth, so many of our wireless systems we owe. To to Hattie Lamar.
4: No, How does one go through a life like this with no one listening? But I have. I have all of you here tonight to listen to my story. Oh my dears. I will answer your question. Oh, my love, and I thank you, yes, you're right there, I thank you to do more than to marvel at the exquisite shapes made by my lips. Oh, Oh, do you think you can do this for me?
0: Heather, when you began to do your research into Hetty's life, when do you think her exceptionalism really manifested itself?
3: Her exceptionalism was really fostered by her father. She was very inquisitive as a child. She liked to take things apart and put them back together to see how they worked. And her father would uh, take her on walks and explain how a streetcar works or how a printing press works. And so she really had a way of understanding the mechanics of machinery at a very young age.
0: So growing up in Austria, Hetty was experiencing a kind of um, support from her father, it sounds like, that wasn't that common for girls of her era.
3: She never admired any man in her life as much as she did her father. Um, so that that really manifested throughout her life. He instilled on her that she needed to make her own choices and have her own mind and ask for what she needed. So she didn't have fear of pursuing things that people wouldn't think a young woman would do and the fact that she was able to create technology and she was self-taught she left school at about 16 or 17 the only things she studied after that were performance stage acting and film acting and uh, so everything that she knew mechanically was was self-taught she would buy books and she would she would learn on her own
0: these scientific and engineering results and experiments that Hetty was engaged in she was doing concurrently with actually being one of the top leading ladies in Hollywood.
3: She wasn't one that really relished the Hollywood parties. She'd rather have an intellectual conversation with a small group of friends or be at home at her drafting table creating inventions to improve systems in the world to make the world a better place. So she got to Hollywood in 1937. Her first film was Algiers with Charles Boyer, Mm -hmm. and she was in The Conspirators, which was MGM's answer to Casablanca, but was not nearly as successful. (laughs) Mayer just wasn't willing to loan her out for Casablanca, but Hetty was able to break her contract. She was in a seven-year contract, um, and she broke it six years in order to produce her own films. It was during World War II that she decided she wanted to do something to support the Allied forces. So she was from Vienna, Austria. Her first of six husbands was Fritz Mondel, an Austrian arms dealer. And she overheard a lot of conversations with world leaders and her husband. Um, about the munitions that they were uh, commissioning. And um, she understood what they were talking about. They wouldn't have known that. So she brought that knowledge with her and decided that she wanted to create technology for torpedoes to make their guidance systems more accurate.
0: So were these adaptations adopted during World War II? Was it something that was easy for her to get the military brass to recognize the genius of?
3: Ha! No. (laughs) No. Not at all. She didn't use her stage name, Hedy Lamar, on the patent. She used her married name at the time, Hedy Kiesler Markey. And um, her co-inventor was George Antile, who was an avant-garde music composer. <laughs> so somehow the Navy Brass did not understand the merit. So they, they marked it top secret and shelved it for years. Um, the patent was in 1942, and they actually did use it in 1959 for a buoy system, but Hetty and George didn't know about that. And after that, the patent expired, and it was used in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis and um, was key in preventing that from escalating.
0: Well, did she pursue further technological endeavors? Uh, what year did Hetty pass away?
3: She passed away in 2000. She really wanted to make it into the 21st century, and she did for 19 days. Her last decades were a bit reclusive, I would say. She, she kept to herself quite a bit, and she spent a great deal of time on the telephone. And that's very appropriate since her technology for Torpedo was the reason why it's so intriguing and interesting today is the patent was declassified in the 80s. It really launched today's wireless communication revolution. It's in our cell phones, our Wi-Fi, GPS, Bluetooth, the Milstar system and military satellites, even things so ubiquitous as barcode scanners uh, use Hetty's technology.
0: So Heather, when you constructed this play, what story did you most want to tell, and and where do we join Hetty Lamar in her life when this play begins?
3: So as I said before, I wanted to feature a woman in science in a solo play, Hetty: The Life and Inventions of Hetty Lamar. And in the play, the audience summons Hetty from the beyond. In order to answer the question we all want answered, how is it that somebody so unexpected was able to create technology that we all use every day? So I, as Hedy, um, speak directly to the audience, and I also bring in all of the other characters in her life. I play uh, 35 other characters besides Hetty in the play to make it more immediate for the audience to experience um these different periods in her life. And so I play her father. I play Max Brian Hart, the, the theater producer that she worked with, and also Louis B. Mayer and uh, Jimmy Stewart, Clark Gable, Betty Davis. And so I have a lot of fun with that and it, it, it brings the show to life and even in all of that, the most important relationship is Hetty's relationship with the audience, which is a lot of fun and makes each performance very special.
0: Heather, as you prepare to bring this play here to Arizona and let audiences see what you're doing, what's something that you hope that they might take home with them at the end of the evening in their heart or their mind about Hetty Lamar's story?
3: Uh, of course, I want them to, to love and be intrigued by Hetty Lamar and, and even want to learn more. I want people to be inspired to pursue their passions. My mission with the show is to inspire audiences to make the world a better place, especially to encourage young women in science and technology and to establish Hedy Lamar as a role model for intelligence, ingenuity, and invention.
4: Yes, wonderful! Now, the truth, that my beauty has been my blessing and it has been my curse. I curse it because I do have a brain, as strange as that may seem. (laughs) I employ my brain in intellectual conversation with those in favor of engaging and in pursuit of invention at my drafting table. In terms of my heart, It is always in quest of finding that which it seeks, but everywhere I find men who pay homage to my beauty and show no interest in me. There is a large part of my heart in a place that you may not recognize. I am in your pocket.
0: My guest was Heather Massey. She stars in Hetty, The Life and Inventions of Hetty Lamar, at the Tubac Center for the Arts on Friday, January 28th, and the Wilcox Theater and Arts on Saturday, January 29th. Massey will then appear at CPAC, the Community Performance and Arts Center, in Green Valley on Monday, January 31st. You can find information and links on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.